Sorry to interrupt your weekly fill of Pope-related content. My name is Derek, and I'm the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast, a show covering from Alexander the Great to Cleopatra. If you want to learn about significant events in biblical history, such as the translation of the Old Testament into Greek or the Maccabean Revolt, or you just want to learn more about the ancient world in general, then check out my show by searching up Hellenistic Age Podcast in order to find my website or the show on any podcast platform of your choice. Now, back to your regularly scheduled hosts. Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. And welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bray, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 95, Pope Paul I. Oh, Paul I. Do you remember Paul? He's somewhere wandering. I mean, accurate. <laughs> Let's get into it. Pope Paul was born in Rome. His father was Constantine. And he had a brother called Stephen. Yes, that's Stephen, because this is the last Pope's brother. So he is, in fact, doing a wander around. So just like it had been with Stephen, Paul came from the aristocratic Bobone family, but was orphaned young and taken into the church. And so he also was, as we quoted from the Liber Pontificalis, was handed to learn the teaching of the church in the Lateran Patriarchate, and afterwards, he was consecrated along with his brother by the blessed Pope, Lord Zacharias, to the Order of the Diaconate. We should also point out that, remember, last week, Stephen had gotten the second longest biography in the Liber Pontificalis, with this great amount of detail that suggested that his entry was probably written by a contemporary source. This is not the same person who wrote Paul's entry. So it's possible that whoever wrote Stephen's entry died soon after Stephen, because Paul's entry, by comparison, is only five pages long, and the style has completely shifted. So when we're dealing with the early detail that we get on Paul's life, it actually is based on what we know about Stephen's life from his entry, rather than his own. So we had to look at what was going on with Stephen and extrapolate for Paul, because the author did not write that down. Anyways, Paul and Stephen are deacons, and so Paul would have had the same opportunity as his brother to move through the various positions in the church and build up a positive reputation and influence. And then when Pope Zachary dies and Pope-elect Stephen dies, Paul's brother Stephen becomes the next pope, and Paul becomes a very busy man. He is appointed to be an important papal legate to the Lombards and King Aistolf, and we know that in his first visits to King Aistolf, Paul was persuasive and was able to secure a peace treaty between the Lombards and Rome for a period of 40 years. But we also know that that almost immediately fell apart when Aistolf resumed his plans to invade Rome almost the minute that Paul had left. We also know that in later Lombard conflict between Desiderius and Rachus, when the Pope supported Desiderius's claim, Paul was sent to be the legate once again. So we can assume, more than just being the Pope's brother, Paul was probably very capable and very diplomatic. He was good at what he was doing. And this comes into play when Pope Stephen II falls ill, because Paul then is considered to be the next Pope. But 
It's not a natural transition because he's not the only candidate this time. There is also an archdeacon called Theophylact that also has a fairly strong standing of support. Fortunately, this isn't going to turn into a whole anti-pope erupt into violence situation, as it turned out that Paul had just enough of majority support that he was going to be elected. So even though there was this well-supported candidate coming up against him, he had enough that it wasn't going to be an issue. However, the Liber Pontificalis does tell us that when his brother Stephen was dying, Paul remained in the Lateran Palace while other people cared for his sick brother in St. Paul's Outside the Walls. It's possible that there was still some concern that Theophylact's supporters were going to try and occupy the Lateran so that when Stephen did die, they could elect their man. So Paul just stays behind and makes sure that doesn't happen. And it didn't happen, because when Stephen dies, Paul was elected without delay and consecrated on May 29th of 757, at which point Theophylact's supporters dispersed and didn't hold up any resistance to the election. And Theophylact himself remains in his clerical duties quite agreeably. He just kind of goes on and disappears, although he is later a legate under Pope Adrian at the Synod of Frankfurt much later. We will not hear from him again. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, goodbye. Just a potential rival gone. He's happy to just not be Pope. So, one of the reasons that Paul ends up with the majority of clerical support was that he would be a natural continuation of his brother's policies. You know, his policies with the Byzantine Empire, with the Lombards, and with the Franks. And Paul proves to be pretty much exactly that, as we will see as we go. Now, upon his election, he still wrote to the Exarch of Ravenna to inform him of the election, but we are now out of the Byzantine papacy, so the tone of this announcement is very different. You know, it's not, hey, uh, I have now been elected, please confirm me. It's now, hey, I have been elected, this is for your knowledge, I don't require your confirmation, and I actually administrate the exarchate, so cool, I'm your new boss. But the Byzantines were still not best pleased with the sudden loss of all of this territory to the Pope. That was otherwise supposed to be, in their eyes, a subject of the empire. What's more, Emperor Constantine V, still of the Puves, <laughs> was still a fierce iconoclast. And Paul wrote to him repeatedly and vehemently against iconoclasm and sent legates to the emperor to try and dissuade him from his aggressive iconoclast policy, and also took in Greek monks who had been expelled from the Eastern Roman Empire for resisting iconoclasm. So this is not a relationship that is about to be reconciled in Paul's papacy. There's just no middle ground with that emperor that's going to go well enough to be buddies. He also wrote a letter to Pepin to inform him of his election and to ensure that the relationship between the papacy and the Franks remained a top priority. Pepin responded to Paul's letter with an open letter to the people of Rome, embracing the new pope and encouraging the Roman people to remain loyal to him. And then that letter received a reply from the people and the senate of Rome, basically confirming their loyalty to the pope and encouraging Pepin to support the pope in obtaining all of the lands that was promised for the papal states and protecting it. 
So it's this back and forth of confirmation. Hey, I'm the Pope now. Hey, I like that you're Pope. I hope all your other people like you as Pope. Hey, we're the people and we like him as Pope. We hope you do your job too. I will do my job. It's like battling affirmations. <laughs> and it certainly did need protecting. The lands of the Papal States were currently under threats yet again and required protection because Lombards. Because always Lombards. Last week, we discussed the new Lombard king Desiderius, who had come to the Pope for support against Rachus, who was his rival claimant to the throne. The Pope had agreed to support Desiderius in exchange for the return of some papal patrimonial lands like Imola, Osimo, Bologna, and Ancora. But then when Desiderius had gone and become king, he'd not followed through with his promise, and only returned a portion of the promised territory. And now he took a step further, launching an invasion to take back Spoleto and Benevento from their, quote, independent slash protected by the Frank status after Benevento had openly separated from the Lombard kingdom. So, hey, here's all these lands that I said you can have. Well, you can't have them and I'm going to start taking things back. And in the process of doing so, Desiderius also causes major damage to the Pentapolis cities, which were now under the jurisdiction of the Pope. So he's just like, hey, <laughs> these lands that are yours, it's gonna just mess them up, right? Like, he's just... <sighs> Desiderius is a pain. He's such a pain. And importantly, while he's in Benevento, Desiderius receives an ambassador called Georgius from the Byzantine Emperor. Because remember, the Empire is extremely unhappy that Pepin had come in, taken the Exarch territory away from the Lombards, and then rather than giving it back to the Empire, he'd given it to the Pope. Initially, the Byzantines had just a treaty to restore them to the Exarchate, because this same ambassador had tried to court Pepin into an alliance to see the territory return. But Pepin had shunted this guy off. So now... Byzantine Empire wants to make an alliance with the Lombards to get this land back, despite the fact that it was the Lombards who had taken it in the first place. So, apparently, in their haste to get Ravenna back, they forgot who attacked Ravenna all the time. It's the Lombards. I always forget. They have forgotten, too. They have forgot, just like you. Like, if you lived in Ravenna... And you found out that they were making a treaty with the Lombards to get Ravenna back. You'd be like, what are you doing? These people are always at our gates. They're always taking the city. They will just take it back from you. The envoy and Desiderius come to an agreement. And so now, with the Byzantines behind him, Desiderius decides he's going to make a visit to Rome. When the Lombard king arrives in Rome... Pope Paul urges him to honor their original agreement to return the papal patrimonial cities, but of course, Desiderius refuses, and he declares that he would only return the cities to the Pope if Paul wrote to Pepin and advised him to give back the Lombard territories and the Lombard hostages that the Frankish king had taken. And... He also threatened Pope Paul that if he refused to write to Pepin, urging those demands, then this new king that the Pope had supported would wage war on Rome. Hey, help me get my lands back or I will attack you. 
And he also hints that this time, due to his own agreement, he might just have some Imperial backup for that war. Which is extra ironic, considering that the Empire never had anyone to spare to help out the Pope before, but might help out his enemy. So, it's just an extra kick in the teeth. And this deeply impacted Paul, who was now incredibly worried about this new alliance between the Byzantines and the Lombards. And you can understand his fear. So far, the alliance between the papacy and the Franks was only recently established, and so far it had been a fair amount of work for Pepin and the Franks, because they have already had to come to defend Rome and the papal territory twice. And now there's a potential combination threat of not just the Lombards, but a Byzantine army as well. Paul realizes that this would be a great time for the Franks to cut their losses and leave the papacy to fend for themselves. This has just become too much of a hassle, you're on your own. The same thing that the Byzantines had done to the papacy, he's afraid the Franks are now going to do. Fair. And understandably so. Paul does give in to Desiderius's demands, and he writes to Pepin, urging him to release the lands and the hostages. But while he was doing this, he also sends a second secret letter warning Pepin about the alliance between the Lombards and the Byzantines and their plans to reconquer Ravenna. And in the secret letter, he pleads with Pepin to come and intervene and to force Desiderius to give back the promised patrimonies. Both letters were sent with the Bishop of Ostia and a Roman priest and a Frankish ambassador just to ensure that the secret letter doesn't get intercepted before they get there. So he sent a letter off. He's thinking, okay, I really, really, really need Pepin's support right now. And then the situation becomes really concerning in about 759, when rumors start to spread of a large Byzantine fleet sailing towards Rome. And these rumors are not insubstantial. They're not made of whole cloth, because around the same time, the Archbishop of Ravenna, Sergius, receives a letter from the Empire requiring the Church and the Exarch to voluntarily submit themselves for re-annexation. So they're basically tipped off that someone's coming to take Ravenna back. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, they're just going to be fighting on top of... Uh... On top of everybody, yes. Just go away, nobody wants you here. But the Byzantines and the Lombards are now allied over getting Ravenna back, right? So they're like, hey, now it's worth our time. So they tell the bishop, hey, we're coming, get ready to be part of the empire again. But the archbishop Sergius wrote to the pope at once to inform him, which is extra wild. Because this is the same Sergius of Ravenna that we mentioned last week that was imprisoned when he got to Rome by Paul's brother. This was the archbishop they locked up based on, like, not wanting to deal with him. But it seems on Stephen's death, Paul had released Sergius and allowed him to go back to his bishopric, which might explain this act of loyalty, but it is otherwise very surprising. So Paul is now very afraid of this looming threat. So, of course, he writes to Pepin again. And it was probably actually to the benefit of both the Pope and the Franks that Pepin hadn't come to Italy to subdue the Lombards before this time. Because if there really was a fleet on the way, Pepin would probably want to get the Lombards back on side. 
the Franks have traditionally maintained favorable relationships with the Lombards, and Pepin prudently would rather sort out an alliance that left the Lombards, the Pope, and the Franks all in peace, stabilizing the whole region, before he has to take on a Byzantine fleet. So he arranges a meeting between the Pope and Desiderius in Rome in 765, and finally the territory conflict was settled with the Pope regaining the promised city. So Desiderius finally agrees with Pepin arranging the whole thing to finally give the Pope what he wants. And during that time, some Byzantine forces did arrive in the south of Italy and did take some territory. Although there was a fair bit of pushback, particularly from the Duchy of Naples by Duke Stephen II, who threw their support behind the papacy as well. They're there, they came, but they didn't really get anywhere. And during the meeting between the Lombard king and Pope Paul, Pepin had also urged Desiderius to help the pope, who he was now in accord with, get back anything that the Byzantines had now taken. So everything's just kind of flipped itself on its head. It was going to be the Lombards and the Byzantines. They were going to come and take everything back from the Pope. And now Desiderius is on side with the Pope and the Byzantines are out of luck. So this is an excellent little bit of political machinations on Pepin's part. So we'll shift gears a little bit now and look at Rome itself. Because Paul is responsible for something that we started to talk about in Pope Leo II's episode after the Lombards had sacked the area around Rome. So Paul now continues the transportation of relics from saints and martyrs from the catacombs from outside of the walls of the city into the churches of the city. One of the more notable relics that he transferred at this time was that of St. Petronilla from the catacombs of St. Domitilla into an oratory in St. Peter's constructed by his brother. This is, I guess, something that Pope Stephen had set out to do, but hadn't quite finished before he died. This new oratory that Stephen started and Paul finishes becomes the chapel of St. Petronilla. Do you know anything about St. Petronilla? I can't say that I do based on the name. Well, the name is kind of a hint as to why she's a very important saint. Okay. Petronilla. It sounds like a cleaning solution. (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) That's not it. Gonna keep the mosquitoes at bay and also make your (laughs) counters so shiny. That's a guess. (laughs) I'm not going to say it was a good guess, but that's a guess. I, look, no, I I got no idea. Saint Petronilla is very important because she's traditionally been identified as the daughter of Saint Peter. Oh, it's it's Peter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Petron. <laughs> I had COVID. My brain doesn't work sometimes. I mean, fair. I had honestly, surprisingly, never heard of Petronilla before. Now, By modern standards, we should say that this is considered very suspect. Obviously, if we knew the name... When we covered St. Peter's, we covered this, that we didn't know the name of St. Peter's wife or his children, right? We didn't... That was all just cast aside. So now suddenly there's this important St. Petronilla who's the daughter of Peter. It just seems very suspect. 
And it's more likely that she was someone that St. Peter had converted rather than his biological daughter. So it's more of a spiritual daughter, if you will. Ah, they do like saying that. They do. But at the time of Paul and the time that she's being moved, she definitely would have been thought of as his daughter, his biological direct daughter. So this is a really big and important move. And since she was being moved in at this time, given the new relationship between the Pope and the Franks, Petronilla at this time becomes the patron saint of Frankish rulers and of treaties between the Popes and the Franks, slash later French. And her chapel becomes a burial place for future French kings. So this is another excellent bit of political and symbolic relationship building, right? The Pope is the apostolic successor of Peter, and the daughter of Peter watches over and intercedes for the Frankish kings. It is a little bit of brilliance. Paul also founded several churches and monasteries, including turning his familial home into a monastery, since we know his parents died a long time ago, and founding the church of San Silvestro in Capite, which is where he sent many of the relics that he was transferring. He also held a synod in this church in 761 that confirmed Rome's commitment against iconoclasm and cemented clerical understanding of the papal states. Just a little synod to sort of open and christen his church. But then Pope Paul fell ill with what Wendy J. Reardon suggests was heat exhaustion, and he was taken to St. Paul's outside the walls to rest and recover. Okay, I mean, that's fair. It's very easy to uh, succumb to, to heat exhaustion. Especially in Italy. It is so hot there. So I feel like, I don't know where Aunt Carla was, but she was with, like following the Pope around and definitely got heat stroke. What? What is this story and how have I never heard it before? Because we don't talk about Aunt Carla a lot. She was following the Pope around? I don't know. She was on like a... I don't know where she was, and it was definitely like JP2, but she was somewhere where the Pope was, and the Pope was doing like a little parade thing, and she got heat stroke. Yep, that's that all sounds very accurate for Italy. It's very hot there. It makes sense. But presumably, it's colder at St. Paul's Outside the Walls. Is it closer to like a, a river? Yeah, it's closer to, it's, well, I should say it's further down the Tiber, right? Because obviously Rome is on the Tiber and Castel San Angelo is right there, but it's further down, so it's closer to like the catacombs of Calixtus, so it's more far, well, it's like, like there are actual fields and things instead of just lots of buildings. Yeah, buildings and pavement. Yeah, exactly. So it, Or it would, whatever doubled as pavement back then. We know that Romans had very, very effective concrete. We don't know when exactly they lost that recipe and stopped using it. They just assumed that we knew how to make it and didn't write it down. Exactly. He goes to St. Paul's Outside the Walls to recover from his heat exhaustion. But it was not quite enough. And he died on June 28th of 767 at St. Paul's Outside the Walls. Oh, he was way too hot. He was way too hot. However, while he lay dying, conspiracies began to arise that we will cover next time. He was buried at St. Paul's Outside the Walls with an epitaph reading only, Here is buried Pope Paul. 
His body was then moved in October of the same year into St. Peter's, into an oratory that he built dedicated to Our Lady. Wendy J. Reardon also adds, This oratory was enclosed with a bronze railing and was so sacred that women were not allowed to enter. Man. Yeah. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know what? It's dedicated to Our Lady and we're not allowed to go in there. Right? It's so stupid. I hate that nonsense. <laughs> this is the first time we might feel okay saying this tomb was then destroyed for New St. Peter's. <laughs> that tomb. <laughs> like, I'm still mad it was destroyed, but also, like, women can't go in here because they're unholy is the worst thing I've ever heard. It is the most obnoxious thing. I just hate that. We're not sacred enough to enter the sacred spaces. Well, too bad for you. Of Our Lady. How'd she get in there? Is she allowed in there? I wonder if there is some kind of discussion about, I'm sure that there is in either gender studies or religious studies that look at the femininity and the womanhood of Mary and kind of like where that intersects. I'm going to have to look into that because that's, that's a thing now. Is she allowed in the ladies, in the no lady zone? Apparently so. She is everywhere in the no lady zone. Why is she allowed in the no lady zone? Yeah, why? Why? She's she's supposed to be the ladiest of ladies. Well, we've got to find out an answer. Why she's allowed as the ladiest lady in the no lady spaces. I mean, someone's going to be like, when you give birth to the savior of the world, you can go in the non-lady spaces. I'm sure, but you know what? Get out of my face with that. <laughs> That's Pope Paul. And now it's time to rate him. Papatum. And phallium. Here, he resists the iconoclasm and takes in Greek monks who are expelled for defending iconoclasm in the Byzantine Empire. He translated the relics of St. Petronilla, and that was very important at the time, and created this lovely little spiritual myth-making with the Franks. Everything else is going to be in Seculari Impactum. I'm not feeling super strong. Um, no. Maybe like a three at most, really. Oh, yeah. Three, I feel, is still kind of a little bit generous. I'm going to give him a two, because he just didn't get up to as much. So he'll get a five. He got too hot. It's true. Fructus prohibitum. Well, no, no scandal here. I kind of want to give him one out of spite for having a tomb so sacred that women can't enter it. But he was already dead at that point, so we can't really blame him for that. That wasn't his choice. It was not his choice. So it has to be a zero. Seculari impactum. So he maintains a very good relationship with Pepin and the Franks, and that really helps him out when he's dealing with the Lombards and the Byzantines. So there's that to be considered. He is able to come to peace with Desiderius, the Lombard king. It does come at the insistence of Pepin, and he does unfortunately give in to Desiderius's threats. But you can understand why. There is a potential that we can say that this was a very savvy political move because he realized that if he didn't play things correctly, he could have lost his greatest ally by being too problematic, too much work than it was worth. Also, when Pepin's daughter was born in 758, Pepin sent her baptismal cloth to the Pope as a gift, so their relationship is clearly. Very entrenched at this point. You know, I'm leaning towards like a five. Five? Oh, 
Man, you're, I think you're very generous to Paul. I'm, I'm feeling generous to Paul. He got too hot. Considering how our last couple popes have gone, I'm, I'm glad to hear you being charitable to at least one of them. Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with three. It's It's good, but it's not super major at this point. So an eight for Seculari Impactum feels fair. Fossium Sanctus. All right, here is Paul. He's got a crack down the middle of his face. That's unfortunate. That is a suave mustache. He's also got a very coiffed beardy boy. He does. This is a man who has paid attention to his grooming. His hair looks combed. Yeah, he looks way more put together than a lot of the popes that we've seen so far. Aside from the giant crack in his face, which again, that's not not his his fault. (laughs) So what are you thinking? Uh, he's got, like, I don't know what's going on with his Roman nose. I think part of that, no, maybe not the crack. Something happened to his nose. It looks like there's something there, but, I mean, it it also looks like that could just be an unintended result of, of the, the crack. crack. Yeah. yeah. He looks like he's supposed to have a Roman nose. He does have a Roman nose, But it ended sure. up more Owen Wilson-y because of the crack down his face. Yeah, that's probably true. Because if you look at where it meets his forehead, there is a tiny little sort of shifty bit. So, yeah. I don't want to judge him too harshly on his unfortunate bad nose. Yeah, that's a mistake of time. I don't know, though. I feel good about it. He's very put together. He looks like he is done with at least today and the sitting that's true yeah he does kind of have that i am over this expression on but he is also doing that i am over this expression in a very dignified sort of way he is very dignified i can honestly give him like a seven okay i'm gonna give him an eight because i really like it he's so put together we have seen a couple like just i don't know like they they look like they just got up popes it's true. Yeah, we've definitely... I The other day, it was the uh, the feast day of uh, Marcellinus, and he just... His picture popped up on all our social media, and he just looked rough, and I kept going, oh, that's a rough-looking man every time I saw it. So this is the opposite of that. So he'll get an 8 and a 7, which will give him a score of 3.75. But that's not it, because I have a couple more images for you to look at. These two are clearly, again, based on the same image, which looks nothing like this other one, so... Okay, we got a a bald Colin Mockery again. We have a really messed up nose. Really aged up bald Colin Mockery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is definitely an older man. That's post-heat stroke, really dehydrated. That's it. And then this one, if we are to take this one at gospel, his nose is really messed up. It just looks like they were bad at drawing. Like, they they got in there and they're like, ah, I can draw this crack as well. I don't know what shapes are. <sighs> yeah, it's like somebody who, who does is still figuring out how to draw anatomy and has overshaded the nose. So that's happening. We are watching this person learn how to draw as we go along, which is interesting. <laughs> It is true. We are seeing some improvements and some regressions, but it's happening. It's definitely like it's going and then it'll take a couple steps back and then it'll go forward again. And sometimes just a complete left turn. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes they were feeling saucy that day. 
All right, I have one more for you, and this is the seal. This is apparently the seal of Pope Paul. So I'm assuming that this would be Paul and Stephen, the two brothers, but it could also be Peter and Paul, because, you know, Peter and Paul. Nay, ayoy. <laughs> yes. Ayoy. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I knew you would mention the lettering. <laughs> Nay. The lettering is in the Greek alphabet, so I have no idea what it is supposed <laughs> to have either. said. But apparently the answer is nay, ayoy, so... Tempus Pontificus. So May 29th, 757 to June 28th, 767. Ten years and a score of 2.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. He has a feast day of June 28th, which is, again, really surprising because his brother is not. But he is not the patron saint of anything. So for the first time in a while, we can make him a patron saint of something. Oh, no. Okay, so we've got some choices. We do have some choices. We have leaving ladies out of spaces. <laughs> We have unfortunate cracks down your nose. We have nay, ayoy. We have, like, manscaping. Manscaping, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I don't, I'm trying to think of how to phrase leaving ladies out of spaces would be, like, misogynistic uses of space, which feels so specific. It's very specific. Um, but, like, all, like, the crack and the, the leaving... Ladies out of spaces were both done after he died in the name yeah, of him. So, like, it's true. What do we call that? Like, uh, unfortunate use of legacy, posthumous blame. <laughs> yes. Okay. So then the question is: Does he become the patron saint of posthumous blame or the patron saint of manscaping? Well, manscaping is like the whole thing where like you shave everything and whatever and whatever. And I'm not sure what those uh, dapper Santa Clauses call themselves. The lumbersexuals. Yeah, those guys. <laughs> but the the old ones. Maybe they need a patron saint. I don't know. Dapper Santa Clauses would be another very strange thing for him to be. The patron of? Or posthumous blame? I mean, that covers so many things, too. What does your heart say, Fry? So, if you Google Dap for Santa Claus, you definitely get a lot of images. I'm afraid to do this because St. Nicholas and all that. Oh, dear. Hmm, no, I don't like that at all. You do not like Dap for Santa Claus? The one of the man in the red leather coat taking a selfie gives me nightmares. Fashion Santa? Shit, Fashion Santa, get out of here. So I think we have decided not Fashion Santa. Not Fashion- this, There's a whole photo shoot of this. Get out of here. I'm closing this. I'm taking this out of my face. So I guess it's posthumous blame. I'm also going to posthumously blame him for the nightmares that I'll have over Dapper Santas, even though it's your fault. Well, then it seems the most appropriate. He can be the patron saint of posthumous blame. There we go. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry, Paul. Which leaves us with a final question, which is whether we think he was popey enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal ball? No. Nah, nah. I mean, I do think it's funny that his brother is the sixth top-scoring pope. He got the papal bull. 
he got all of that, but this Pope who scored 46th place, not too bad, doesn't have a papal bull, but is a saint. What's that about? I don't know. That's just real confusing to me, but I'm sorry, Paul. I just don't think you have it, so... Not the pizzazz. Not the pizzazz. Your brother had the pizzazz, though, so... Got all the pizzazz in that family. He got all the pizzazz, and Paul got all the posthumous blame. (laughs) Yeah. That's how that works. Super unfortunate. But with that, we have some thank yous to make. So we want to thank, of course, Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for always being our support network and, and inspiring us to do what we do. And I also want to give a huge thanks to our network, Agora. We've been doing doing real well with the... Oh my the, uh, gosh, with- yeah. We were the podcast for them to promote for December, and our numbers went woo yeah, they did. They definitely turned some new eyes and ears onto us, and that's wonderful. So thanks, Agora, for being great. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And on that note, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Davis, Jane Redfin, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Brian Ivory, Rudyard Lynch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, B.T. Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content Seven, creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com shop.